You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. I hope you've been practicing your stiff upper lip, Wade, because for the two films this week, we're taking a trip to the British Isles. You know, Kevin, actually sitting beside me is a plate of fish and chips. So if you hear me smacking, I'm just enjoying a delicious meal. Ah, British cuisine and loud lip smacking. Two terrible tastes that go terribly together. (laughs) Listeners, today we're looking at the new film from Cartoon Saloon, directed by Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, Wolf Walkers. We're also going to be reviewing a film that saw release earlier this year and is now seeing its streaming release. That would be Armando Iannucci's Dickens adaptation, The Personal History of David Copperfield. You know, Kevin, is that the one that begins, uh, it was the worst of times, but it, but it was also the worst of times? Uh, you know, I wasn't paying much attention during that part of English class. So I think it's the one that has the catchphrase, bah humbug in it. Okay, okay, it makes sense. Listeners, we're going to be reviewing those two films coming up on this episode. Episode 272 of Seeing and Believing. Wolf, wolf. Hunt them far and yonder. The forest is brimming with wolves. It's my job to hunt them down, not yours. But we could hunt them together. Wolves, bears, dragons even. (laughs) Yes, listeners, we are here, episode 272. Kevin, we had a little too much fun in that introduction, and it took us a couple of takes to get those jokes out. But I'm I'm believing that they were they were worth it in the long run. I'm sure that they were absolutely <laughs> worth it. At least, though, Wade, we didn't uh, make things worse by trying to do it all in a British accent or something. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but my accent works pretty reliably terrible, so mm. I'm glad we just stayed away from that altogether. You know, we I think we have briefly talked about it because I've mentioned on the podcast that individuals who are not British doing a British accent is like nails on a chalkboard to me. I can't can't stand it. It drives me crazy. So I'm really glad you didn't try this time, Kevin. Yeah, I I guess I do feel a little bit of envy for all those great British actors who you don't even know are British because they're, you know, do American accents so flawlessly. I'm a little bit envious that uh, it's not a two-way street there, but, you know. (laughs) You, you you get older, you learn to live with disappointment. You know, I'll let the British people take our superheroes. We're just not allowed to take their superheroes. We'll just, we'll do that. We can't take their, actually, we can't take their Dickens adaptations. They can have our, our superheroes. We're going to look at the personal history of David Copperfield here a little bit later. It's now available on VOD. It hit theaters back in September. I know many people are just catching up with it, but this week's episode does begin with a look at the new animated film from Cartoon Saloon, Wolfwalkers. Let's get us started with the film's official synopsis. In a time of superstition and magic, when wolves are seen as demonic and nature and evil to be tamed, a young apprentice hunter, Robin, comes to Ireland with her father to wipe out the last pack. But when Robin saves a wild native girl, their friendship leads her to discover the world of wolfwalkers and transforms her into the very thing her father is tasked to destroy Now, as I mentioned earlier, Wolfwalkers is directed by Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, 
and is the latest film from Cartoon Saloon, an animated studio that I know is very near and dear to your heart, Kevin. This film actually made your winter 2020 most anticipated list. We did that, I don't know, month, month and a half ago. So, given the anticipation, I'll just go ahead and ask it to you straight. Kevin, after watching Wolf Walkers, do you feel like it met your very high expectations? Well, those expectations are super high. So if if I say that it maybe didn't quite live up to those those sky high expectations, I hope that doesn't come across as uh, as a as a harsh criticism so much as just an expression of how much I love Cartoon Saloon's work and really just think that they've set, set such a high bar for themselves that's maybe no shame when when one of their newer films doesn't quite hit that sky-high standard. I do like Wolf Walkers quite a bit. I don't think that it quite stands up to the the expectations that were set for it by such films as The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea uh, and The Breadwinner, too, for that matter. I think yeah. those are all three just probably masterpieces wouldn't be too strong a word. I like them quite a bit. But I will say that Cartoon Saloon's number one strength for me uh, across all of their films, including this one, is their genuinely striking inventive uh animation which uh of all animation studios i would probably say is that they're the animators that take the fullest advantage of the possibilities of of cinema and and hand-drawn animation i think this is just an absolutely gorgeous looking film it does so much with the moving image that i is just jaw-dropping frankly and i liked it quite a bit i think for me it might be where where it gets pulled up a little bit short is is maybe some story issues and we can talk about those a little bit later but frankly i would be happy if we never got to that point because i could talk about the animation on display in this film (laughs) for this entire episode yeah yeah no i agree with you i I think the secret of kells is probably their their best work and this does not meet uh, those uh, that standard. And I, I still liked the movie. I, I got hung up on a couple of story issues. And so I walked away admiring it quite a bit, uh, if not uh, absolutely loving it. I agree with you. Visually, this film, it, I mean, it's it's amazing. And we were, we were kind of talking about the... Uh, the hand-drawn sections, Kevin, just just very briefly. And the film is constructed in a way that it's, I feel like it continually reminds us that this is drawn. This is not, this is not a computer animated movie. This is hand-drawn based on the texture, based on the guidelines that are there. I, we watched a, unfinished copy or so it says so i i know that there are some guidelines that might not end up being in the the finished product i I, i'm not sure but this film constantly reminds us that it was created with with physical hands and i think that works really well because there's this storybook quality to the nature of this movie and those stylistic choices further support 
uh, the look and the feel of the film. I especially like, too, during scenes of intensity, there's this sort of texture layer. Uh, I wouldn't even say it's like a film grain, but just these these hand-drawn, it, it, this texture on top that kind of just flashes and moves with, with almost every single frame as if uh the story during those sections have been has been kind of rubbed raw they're the the parts of the book that you've read over and over again and you're kind of moving from page to page and you crumple up a page as you do it and i just love all you know so many of those touches and it makes this film really kind of a wonder uh, to look at and to explore yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the um, the guidelines that appear to still be visible that the art the animators were using while fleshing out uh, the frames that were watching the film. Uh, there was a disclaimer before the screener that we received uh, from Apple TV to to watch in preparation for this episode, and there was a disclaimer in front of it saying, uh, you know, there there might be a few. Uh, colors or, or characteristics of this screener that might not be present in the version that eventually finds its way to final release when app, when it goes up on Apple TV in, in early December. But the interesting thing was, as I was watching this film, and those those guidelines and, and the, the rougher parts of the animation were in evidence, but I forgot about that disclaimer while I was watching because it didn't, it seemed very fitting uh, for this film, which is all about the, the conflict between civilization and, and nature. There's, there's this rustic feel to it so that when you do catch a glimpse of, of those, those rough edges, it doesn't feel like it's unfinished. It feels intentional like there this was something like you said wade that was put together physically by human hands and that goes a long way towards far from detracting from the experience contributing to it and i think that i can't imagine a live action version of this film being nearly as enthralling simply because tom moore and ross stewart and their team of animators have such a preternatural ability to make their their film feel not just like a film but also like uh I, I think this was an example that i used when i when we've talked about the secret of kells on the show in the past just the the, the quality of an illuminated manuscript or a, a piece of medieval art that's you know almost two-dimensional it's got kind of that flattened quality but it's so vibrant that it doesn't it doesn't feel flat it just feels stylized and it's just a remarkable feet of of animation and highly distinctive too no other film studio in the world is making films that look like cartoon saloons and i just love the way their films look oh yeah and and the blocking on some of these shots with characters in the the, the forefront and others uh, in the foreground it really is amazing and there are a sequence of shots throughout the movie and I was trying to describe the look of them. There's sort of these wide shots of, of maybe cities or markets, and uh, many times they're from above. And the, the only thing that I could think of is they are composed of 
a moving Where's Waldo type image. And that might sound like a negative thing because Where's Waldo images are busy. These are not as busy, but there's there's so much there. You're watching a whole section of the city. You're watching this maze, this labyrinth of these roads, and it really is beautiful. And and maybe we need to come up with a name for that type of shot if there isn't one. But I was just kind of astounded when we get these shots. It's as if, it's as if uh, Wes Anderson uh, is able to uh, create animated films. That's what it feels like at times. Uh, just the, the texture there, I thought it was it was beautiful. Some of the sequences really kind of stand out. I love some of these action sequences and the motion of the wolves. Uh, they have this physicality to them. At the same time, there's a swiftness there as they hop from place to place. Uh, it, it really is cut together well. So I... I realize when you're when you're talking about animated movies, we don't talk a lot about editing. But however it was done, whether it was pre-planned or whether they had these sequence of of images and they were able to cut and kind of piece them together, uh, the the sh- the shots as they cut from from shot to shot are just. Uh, fantastic and they do a great job of tracking this action and tracking the movement of of these characters throughout the film. Yeah, there, there's definitely an intentional quality to everything. This is a meticulously crafted piece of work, and you see it in in ways that Tom Moore and, and Ross Stewart kind of have put this film together so that um, they, they almost edit within a frame, but without using a cut. It's uh, more like they use the, the possibilities of animation to create frames within the cinematic frame uh, to to include split screens and to give the idea of time passing or uh, geographical distance covered simply by having characters move within these separate frames that they they've created. So an example is uh, at one point uh, our our main character Robin is kind of returning home uh, over the rooftops. Uh, with her uh, with her pet hawk, and the way that it's presented on screen is there's there's three frames within the frame, and the characters move from frame to frame, and each one of those separate frames kind of shows a different part of the town, different part of the rooftops, so that we see her essentially travel from the city gate a very far distance to her bedroom, but there's there's no time wasted i guess like they, they they present this this distance traveled in a couple of seconds and it's all done by having characters move from frame to frame just in that single uh still shot it's it's difficult to describe and i think that's maybe why it that's partly what makes it such a triumph of animation is it's hard to articulate it in words because it works best in images you know an image is worth a thousand words Mm. i've probably gone over a thousand words just trying to explain (laughs) the work done here and i think that that uh remarkable inventiveness is just on display throughout the film you you mentioned the the way these the wolves are animated uh the way they kind of move almost as a singular entity. Um, so, so it almost looks like a, a single organism moving that's composed of many different uh, 
many different wolves. Um, I, I love how that flowing motion is contrasted with the sharp angles and the almost robotic movement of the, uh, the townspeople and the soldiers who uh, protect the town. It's just really remarkable to look at. It's just, I, I, I would probably watch this film again with the sound off just to luxuriate in what Tom Moore and Ross Stewart have accomplished here. As an added bonus, I think that would probably make some of the um, some of the story elements feel a little bit like less of an issue because I th- I think that's maybe where this film doesn't get let down, but where it doesn't quite rise to the level of its of its forebears because it's not so much that there's a problem with the story; it's just it feels like it's a little bit on the nose or or belaboring its themes when. It doesn't really have to. Everything else is so elegant, the so that the the writing and the the storytelling feels a little bit a little bit more clumsy than the animation that's grown up around it to support it. Yeah, and I, I think that's a problem. I think the story it, it feels a bit thin to me, and it does overemphasize its themes, which feels kind of it, it's surprising to me. Uh, given uh, the studio's success and their and their track record and what we've seen in in other movies, and we should probably talk about some of those themes because it definitely uh, it's definitely pertinent to uh, religion and Christianity. We have an individual who's in charge of this city, and he's called the Lord Protector. This is a quote unquote Christian civilization. He prays, he sees it as God's will for him to destroy these these wolves. We notice here that Christianity is it's very oppressive. Uh, it lacks in imagination. It's very violent. Uh, they look, of course, at the myths surrounding these wolves as quote, pagan nonsense. It goes a little over the top because you, you have characters who, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're praying as they're about to go into battle, or actually in the middle of these big showdowns. And uh, there are scenes inside of a monastery and the line is used, work is prayer. And so it's essentially, hey, fit into this mold uh, and you will... Uh, you'll worship God with your lifestyle. If you don't, then then you're pagan. And the oppressiveness is there. It's probably too strong, but I, I think it does highlight the way that religion can be used as a cover for uh, abuse, uh, fuel for personal pride, and the quest for, for power. And these authority structures are confining uh, when... Christianity should be the most imaginative uh, worldview out there. Christianity should seek to protect nature. Uh, we should see this creation care, and we we don't get it in these characters. So kind of a lot to talk about there, but I do agree that some of these themes are are a little heavy-handed. Yeah, the... Um... I I like that you you bring up how how Christianity is is um, twisted in this film into uh, or or the the rather the character the Christian characters in this film uh, twist Christianity into something that's that's a mockery of itself. There there's a theme running throughout this picture of of freedom and, and liberation and how that's really found outside the walls of the city outside of civilization uh 
Moore and Stewart uh, do a lot with uh, imagery that evokes cages. So like the soldiers' helmets mm-hmm. kind of have this face mask that looks like a cage. Uh, the gate to the city is is grated. Um, various characters are imprisoned in cages over the course of the story. And that set up in opposition to the the wolf walkers, uh, particularly uh, young Maeve, this, this little girl who uh, can uh, become a wolf and who kind of controls these wolves. And she's kind of just completely liberated. And those two forces are set in opposition to each other. I think the the particular flavor of... of Fanaticism. This picture feels a little bit, a little bit two dimensional, and I, I, I wish it weren't because I know that Moore and Stewart in their previous film, The Secret of Kells, uh, are capable of of better when when they portray this kind of of repression. And the reason I'm bringing up The Secret of Kells so much isn't so much as to set up like this film is good and this film is bad, but more to to point out the the parallels between the two. Both films are kind of about this this religious community that is trying to wall itself off from the outside world in the name of safety and because of the fear of the uh, the community's inhabitants, and whereas I think Secret of Kells just tells that story in a beautifully sensitive, nuanced way that uh, feels um, feels both an understanding of both sides of of the divide, both the 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 cloistered religious community and kind of the more uh, mystical Irish countryside. Mm. Um, I think this film feels a little bit like it's doing the same thing except worse. And mm. uh, part of that is 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 isn't so much that it's not a worthwhile theme to explore, but it kind of hits that theme so hard that by the end of the picture, I think the the film runs into pacing problems because you're kind of like I. I get it. I understand what you're going for. There's really no need to continue having the Lord Protector spout vaguely Bible-y phrases as he draws his sword. Like that's that's not necessary, and it feels a little bit like uh, like like a, a caricature rather than something that. Uh, that has been fully thought through. It feels like the Lord Protector in this film is kind of just a a two bit cartoon villain, mm. whereas the um, the antagonist, or at least the uh, the religious figure in the Secret of Kells that was seeking to uh, protect his community from the outside world, was blinkered and in some moments unsympathetic, but he also felt like a real person uh, and, and was more understandable, I guess. And I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of where uh, Wolf Walker's maybe falls a little short for me. Yeah, I, I think I think that's true for me as well. And I, I did feel like the relationship between the father and daughter was a tad bit underdeveloped. Uh, the film seems to go in, in a cycle. Uh, so she, he discovers her being disobedient. He expresses dis- disappointment. He doesn't really hear her out, and then it happens again and again and again. So I wanted to see a little bit more there. I do appreciate, though, uh, Robin's character, and I was expecting this, uh, I guess you could say the the Avatar phenomenon, where someone from outside of a group joins the group, helps to lead in some sort of struggle, and becomes 
their leader and becomes sort of the best of them or the most skilled uh, in their group. And we don't really see that here with Robin's character. She does express some leadership ability, but it's more so uh, bravery versus something that would be unnatural. Uh, Her abilities aren't greater than any of the other wolves. Uh, We just get to see it through her point of view. So I do appreciate that it didn't go the route of something like Avatar. Uh, So there are aspects of the film that I I, I thought worked pretty well. Uh, Ultimately, a couple of story points that do let me down, but still a a very good picture. And and I should stress that if I had not already seen The Secret of Kells and had seen this film, I I probably would appreciate a little appreciate it a little bit more because there is there is a lot to like about uh this film's story i do think that robin and mave are a really fun dynamic pairing to to have at the center these uh these two girls who who become friends and it's again it's not as if uh like you said that robin is this outsider kind of uh who who comes into this wolf walker community and and sort of uh, like you said, becomes sort of the 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 best wolf walker of them all. But there's there's a lot of sensitivity to uh, her, the portrayal of her character, the way she develops over time, the way that uh, Moore and Stewart kind of uh, tease out how um, even Robin kind of begins to exhibit some of the characteristics of her environment and and her upbringing, not because. It's it's twisted her, but simply because she's a child, and that's something that children do. They kind of tend to reflect uh, their their surroundings, and their understanding is really molded by what's being exhibited to them by the by the people, and especially the adults around them. And I think that that's that's very sensitively drawn out in this film. So even if the story doesn't, you know, quite reach sky high limits it's still very good and i i would heart wholeheartedly recommend it for anyone who's really looking for a, a family animated film that pardon the pun colors outside the lines a little bit more than <laughs> the classical disney style hey be honest was that line in your notes because i feel like it was planned You've been no, working no, towards I, that. <laughs> I, I found I found my way there organically. It, it does happen every now and then as yeah. I, you know, bloviate along. I, I find a, a little diamond in the rough. So there, there you go. <laughs> better start there. Better stop there while I'm ahead. Well, listeners, Wolf Walkers is currently playing in limited theatrical release, but have no fear because it's hitting Apple TV Plus on December 11th. I think it's probably worth signing up maybe for a month if you don't have Apple TV Plus to check it out with the fam. If you have a chance to see the film, make sure to let us know your thoughts. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be looking at the personal history of David Copperfield here in just a moment.
Listeners, that song is Confession by David Cricket. We also want to take an opportunity before we move forward to say a big thanks to all of you who support us via our Patreon campaign. It's it's wonderful to have your support and to know that you have our backs and you keep this show going. It's really easy to support our campaign. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And we've got a number of different donation levels. One of our favorites is the what can you buy for $5 level. Kevin, as always, I'm excited to ask you this question. What could somebody buy <laughs> for five bucks? Uh, five bucks would get you Lisa Frank wallpaper. <laughs> okay. So if you if you really want just like to feel like a rainbow threw up in your in your bedroom and you know, then a, a unicorn for some reason is there also, then yeah, that's that's the wallpaper for you. Wow. Okay. I don't know what Lisa Frank wallpaper is, but I, just from your description, it sounds, it just oh, sounds like a did, lot. Did, didn't you, when, when you were growing up, um, uh-huh. didn't you, weren't there any girls in, in your, um, like your, your elementary school class who had like binders or folders that were the, the Lisa Frank style? Did you never see those? They're kind of like, <laughs> uh, super colorful, very nineties. They often had horses or, or unicorns or, you know, that, that sort of thing on them. They're just very, very bright and colorful and sparkly, kind of okay. uh, that kind of aesthetic. You never saw anything like that? Well, well Kevin, I, I was homeschooled. I, di- I didn't talk to a oh. woman until I was, I was 19 years old. So I, I didn't oh, see friend. any of that. <laughs> oh, oh, Wade, you, you obviously have missed out on a huge oh, part of the, of the, older end of the hmm. the millennial nostalgia train because okay. Lisa Frank was was a big deal uh for uh our our age group back in elementary school I, or at least that's that's my impression I feel like I've saw them around a lot oh, my wow. sisters even had well some, some my, my apologies to to Miss Frank but I, I kind of have a visual <laughs> of what you're thinking about and for five bucks I'm sure somebody will take you up on the offer and they'll they'll get that. And I will say this: <laughs> this is a segue. Uh, we have an announcement that we need to talk about, and I know you're probably finishing up a new room in your house. Will you put uh-huh. that wallpaper in your new house? Oh. In that new room? Uh, definitely not. That's probably why I have interior decorating on the brain though is because yes uh my my wife and i are having a baby probably by the time this episode goes live uh the baby will be here wow Um, i've kind of (laughs) you know i'm not i'm not one to talk much about uh my my personal life on the show so i've kind of been keeping on the down low but we're really looking forward to adding a new member to our family and Yes, we have been spending a lot of time on getting the the baby's room ready. No Lisa Frank wallpaper. I I would not want to spend five dollars on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we just went with a good good old solid paint color on the walls and you know some some decorations. Some that's great. Decorations. No, that that's great. Uh, and it's cool that his that his middle name is Wade. I just was really honored uh, with all of <laughs> and, that. <laughs> His first name is Wade too. He's good. His, his first and his middle name are Wade. Just wow. I figured that that would just be 
a really good way to ensure that he doesn't have any weird nicknames, you know, like, you know, huh. some people going by their middle name or whatever. Nope. Either way, it's just going to be Wade. Yeah. Because I wanted to make sure that people addressed him by the same name <laughs> as my podcast co-host. Oh, well, well we're, we're, we're so excited for you and, uh, and just the changes that are coming, which is awesome. Listeners, uh, we do let you know that because Kevin will be out. We're going to be taking a break next week, kind of a busy week, but you'll be out for, for a little bit. And we'll have some guests uh, should be lined up on the show. So we're, we're going to keep some reviews coming. But we'll keep the seat warm, Kevin. And as soon as you're ready to, to come back in with little Wade, <laughs> uh, we're, we're going to be excited to have you back. Well, I am looking forward to uh, having the experience when, when he's older, of course, of you know sitting down with him with a, with a good movie and just kind of uh, imparting that joy to him. That's something I'm really looking forward to. And in the meantime, maybe, you know, during one of these future episodes, you'll, you'll hear him talking and or crying in the background, uh, on, on an episode. So yeah, it's something I'm looking forward to. I (laughs) I hope our listeners are looking forward to that experience as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's super exciting listeners. Uh, make sure, uh, to drop Kevin, a word of encouragement, maybe some advice. I don't know. You probably got a lot of advice. Maybe just some encouragement. Um, you can do it on his on his personal Twitter. You can also send us an email. See what I did here. I'm kind of transitioning back. Uh, seeing and yeah. believing CAPC at gmail.com at CBelievePod. So we're really excited and uh, it's going to be it's going to be great. You were staring slightly. Is there something wrong with me? No, goodness me. No, I, I apologize for my Rudeness. Oh. He's apologizing, Jeff. Shall we forgive him? He says we shall. Thank you, Chip. Think nothing of it, sir. Speaks very well. It was actually me. <laughs> I like to pretend he speaks. We're back with the second half of our show, and now that we have fully educated you, Wade, in the ways of Lisa Frank, now it's time to turn to an equally important pillar of Western culture, Charles Dickens. Are, are you ready for this now? Or oh, we, didn't, we didn't tire you out with the with the earlier uh, schooling? <laughs> well, I'm just excited that it's Christmas time almost, and we're talking about a Charles Dickens book that's not a Christmas Carol uh, or a movie adaptation. I hear that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm actually kind of surprised that there isn't another some sort of a Christmas Carol homage or adaptation mm-hmm. uh, coming up. Maybe it's because of the pandemic, and you know that just fell by the wayside. Mm. Um, and next year, you know, the the Christmas Carol adaptations will come roaring back. But for now, uh, we do have a different adaptation of Dickens that has just come to streaming release. It has. Uh, quote-unquote theatrical release a few months ago. Obviously, wasn't the ideal time, so we're just getting around to it now. Uh, it is The Personal History of David Copperfield, adapted by maybe a surprising choice for uh, a whimsical Dickens adaptation, Armando Iannucci of In the Loop and The Death of Stalin fame. The Personal History of David Copperfield reimagines Charles Dickens's classic ode to grit and perseverance through the comedic lens of its award-winning filmmakers, giving the Dickensian tale new life for a cosmopolitan age with the diverse ensemble of stage and screen actors from across the world. 
Emmy winners and Oscar nominees Armando Iannucci and Simon Blackwell lend their wry yet heart-filled storytelling style to revisiting Dickens' iconic hero on his quirky journey from impoverished orphan to burgeoning writer in Victorian England. Wade, we've, we talked about this before the show. Neither one of us has actually read the source material novel or seen one of the previous adaptations of that work. But mm-hmm. we do have experience with Dickens in general, not just A Christmas Carol, but A Tale of Two Cities, some of his other work. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question for you to get us started is, the personal history of David Copperfield obviously takes a pretty original angle in adapting Dickens's fiction to the big screen in a relatively fleet two-hour runtime. How do you think that this approach to Dickens's unique style works on screen? Yeah. Well, yeah, I've read A Tale of Two Cities and, you know, read different pieces of other books. Haven't read this book. But Dickens is kind of known for his his big style, his detailed style. And in one sense, I think the personal history of David Copperfield taps into some of that uh, ethos. It's it's big and it's bold. It, I wouldn't say that it's very very detailed in the sense that we really just kind of dig into these characters and dig into these scenes. But I I like the approach with this movie, even if I'm not necessarily a big fan of of the film. And I. I like I said, I don't have any like way to know if it's a good adaptation of the actual book, but it seems to take chances and and wants to be grandiose, which uh, I think that's a, I think that's a good starting place for something uh, on Dickens. Yeah, I um I didn't like I said I I haven't read the source material either. I don't really have any sort of context for. David Copperfield outside of this film, I did try to do my due diligence and kind of like, you know, do do some Wikipedia trawling, maybe look up some some uh, essays on the Dickens novel just to make sure I could kind of like get a sense for, you know, what was in there that maybe Iannucci and uh, Blackwell made the adaptational decision to remove that sort of thing. And from what I understand, David Copperfield, the novel is kind of pretty episodic. It is kind of a series of of encounters, of episodes, of of periods, uh, kind of a picaresque tale, I guess, where uh, the the main character kind of bounces from station to station, from high to low throughout his story and part of the fun of that is just sort of hanging on for the ride right like in enjoying the characters that uh rotate in and out of his life and just enjoying uh the the story uh as it unfolds in front of us without necessarily being concerned with a a very tight controlled arc because if there's one thing that i guess dickens is not known for it's being tight and controlled and kind of this clockwork writer he's He's a he's a big writer. He is a, a colorful writer, and you definitely see that in this latest adaptation of his work. Everything from the the performances to the costumes to the set design, it's all screaming color. It's very it's very mm-hmm. outsized and whimsical, and it, it's intended to be that way. I I don't know that 
I liked it very much. Um, I think, and, and it's difficult to know whether this is just a hard story to adapt in that kind of episodic nature, but at least coming into it cold, it felt like the the episodes were almost like a series of anecdotes. It didn't really feel to me like uh, the various relationships and uh, ups and downs that our protagonist, uh, who's played by a very good Dev Patel uh, in this picture. I, I just don't think that it really feels like Ayanuchi has really solved the problem of how to how to make it feel uh, like less of a series of anecdotes. I guess it, it just does feel like a kind of pinball from one scene to the next. And each scene is kind of has its own enjoyment in a way. I, I think that the cast is really strong and with a cast this strong that you really do can kind of coast on their skill uh, up to a point. But after a while, it did begin to feel a little bit weirdly monotonous, I guess, to me, I guess would be something to to talk about because this is a film that doesn't seem like it should be monotonous with how vibrant and colorful it is. But the effect of kind of the succession of of episodes just didn't feel like it it hung together and after a while it just kind of felt like had a samey rhythm after a while well yeah i mean you mentioned something is it's it's one of those hey it's different vignettes and hang on for the ride uh just have fun with it and i think maybe that's where it fell off for me because i didn't really have fun i didn't really enjoy the ride and i watched it and i was like i didn't really i didn't really like that movie um I guess, I don't know, was it a failure? And I, I see a lot of people who just really enjoyed it and just had a great time. And so there's there's a disconnect here. And as I'm watching this, uh, knowing that it's an adaptation, uh, I kept feeling that it was an adaptation. And I think that can be good and that can be bad. Here, it seemed like the movie was trying to hit a lot of notes and hit a lot of scenes and cut from one place to the other. And then what it would do is it would kind of circle back to certain characters and we get what would feel like a, or supposed to feel like a climactic moment with certain individuals. And you're like, well, I mean, I've only seen those people for a few minutes on the screen. I don't have a huge connection to them. And yet I feel like the movie wants me to, to really empathize with their character or, uh, to be sad or happy with them. And as I'm watching the movie, I'm thinking, wow, in the book, I probably really do like this person. Or in the book, I bet this scene, if this scene's in the book, it's probably an emotional scene. Uh, for me, it just it just didn't happen. Now, you, you mentioned uh, Dave Patel, De sorry, Dev Patel, and uh, he is really good he's he's fantastic i just don't know if i ever really get a hold of his character and i think part of the film is him trying to find out who he is uh he's trying to find you know what makes a name how does he earn his name and and yet by the end of it i i felt like i felt like the forces of the world were carrying him along versus him sort of standing as an individual and taking some sort of agency. And as a result, I, I just don't know if I connected with him the way that, that I felt like I should. It's not his performance. Um, it, I think it's just kind of the, the way the story is composed. 
Yeah, I, I mean, again, it, from the from my research, it does seem like that might partly just be a feature of the source material and that David Copperfield himself isn't the most three-dimensional person. He, he's, he's a little bit of a blank slate, and the color of the story comes from the people around him. So that quality you're mentioning of this David Copperfield feeling a little bit underdeveloped might be because of the fact that the 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 main character to begin with, there's not a whole lot to him, which uh, is understandable to a certain extent. But you do kind of hope that in at in adapting that character for the screen and having an actor on hand to give him life and and flesh and blood, you would find a, a way to to get around that. And I think Dev Patel really does kind of. I don't know, there, there's this uh, almost showmanship quality to David Copperfield that I think is very, very winning, I guess. He's he's charismatic, he's he's funny. There's so many scenes where Patel shows a really, I guess, I, a hitherto unseen, at least for me, aspect of his repertoire, which is a gift for mimicry. Uh, over the course of the story, Copperfield kind of does impressions of various other characters, and they're very strong to the point where he just kind of strikes a face and says a couple of words, and you're like, oh, he's doing an impression of Hugh Laurie in this picture. That's really fun. Um, and, and that, I think, does get give the film a certain amount of charm that gets you through a little bit. But you're right that as it goes on, you're kind of waiting for... It to evolve or to shift into the next gear, and that never really happens. And part of that might be because of Ainuchi's decision to adapt this almost as uh, as a, a metafictional kind of quality. So the the framing device is that Copperfield is an author, somewhat like Dickens himself, who gives live readings of his work to paying audiences in a theater. And so that's kind of taken us uh, into this place where the story is presented as something imagined that we're, we're seeing unfold before us, kind of in the way that the audience in the theater would be seeing it in their mind's eye as it's read aloud to them. And that's, ki that's an interesting idea, and I was kind of curious to see what Ayanuchi would do with it. And I don't really think he takes it anywhere that shows it living up to its full potential. There's kind of these these metafictional tricks where uh, you know one one character will comment on the presence of another character in the scene or where a, a, a previous flashback will kind of be played uh, in rear projection on a wall behind a character in the present day. And that's kind of interesting as stylistic flourishes, but I don't think Ayanuchi ever really brings it home to mean much more than just being a stylistic flourish, if that makes sense. Yeah, there there are a number of instances, imaginative instances in the movie that uh, I, I think looked good and, and they were fun, they're fanciful, but almost seemed a little odd. So there's, there's one sequence where uh, the main character goes and he visits a home that's a boat turned upside down. And the way that they visit this place is, is kind of confusing. We're not really sure what's happening. And then towards the end of that scene, a hand reaches through the boat, kind of crashes down on the characters. And then we, we cut and we get uh, 
young David Copperfield, and he's kind of drawing images and creating these stories. And so we get the sense that, okay, maybe this is a childhood memory that he's tweaking, he's kind of moving around. Uh, and yet, the film almost kind of loses that that fanciful nerve, and then we'll come back to it. And then there'll be a scene where it's projected onto a room, like you mentioned, or a scene where Copperfield's character visits something that's happening. So he's the narrator in the scene. At the beginning of the film, he kind of wit- he witnesses his own birth. So it, it feels a little a little strange. Are we talking about the nature of storytelling and how when we look back at the past, we tend to add these imaginative flourishes to it? Are we supposed to say, hey, we can't really trust Copperfield and maybe he's twisting the truth a bit, but that's what makes him a... Uh, a popular author because people want they want something outside of their circumstances. I, I, I'm, I'm really not sure. Uh, the film, I, I felt like, uh, touched on a couple of different ideas uh, in terms of the economic climate and the social climate of England at that time. I, I believe the term that they use for casting, they call it colorblind casting. And so you have characters who are related to each other and um, but there are different ethnicities and different races. And I think that works really well because if we're talking about the social divide, uh, just mixing up this cast is a it, it's a whole lot of fun and it it serves to kind of reinforce our expectation and our expectations on who is quote unquote supposed to be on the screen. So I think there's some little touches there, but uh, it, it almost seems to disappear throughout the film. And, and we get these sequences towards the end that's just like, I, I don't really know why I'm here. I don't really care too much about these characters. It's just plot. What is it really kind of supposed to mean if I'm not enjoying the ride? And, and that's where it kind of ultimately kind of comes off the rails for me. Yeah, you know, I, I read a, a review of this film uh, by Josh Larson, uh, and he used the uh, the phrase uh, Dickens as farce to describe this film. And I think that that's a pretty good way of conceptualizing what Ainucci's kind of going for here. The, the pace of the film is so breakneck, and some of the scenes do, they, they've got this stagey quality that if you've ever seen like an actual farce on stage does feel very intentionally. Characters kind of being in this very hectic, uh, you know, contained space and, you know, off-screen actions kind of affecting the the actors on stage and everybody's kind of rushing around and talking really fast. And that's that's fine. I don't think it really lands here, though, because uh, Ainucci is good at farce, but he's not good at this kind of farce, if that makes sense. When I think of Ainucci, I think of his real, uh, his hyper-verbose, very profane wordplay uh, where, where characters just kind of hate each other or at least resent each other to some extent. And there's this is a very much more warm-hearted kind of story, and Ayanucci isn't trying to deconstruct that. He's trying to lean into it. I just don't think his gifts really lie along that axis. And so the farcical pacing ends up feeling not humorous so much as just strained and and hurried 
And within that frame, it all, it, like you said, just doesn't give the audience space to connect with any of the characters on screen, which means that when we reach the, the climactic kind of uh, moment where everything comes together for Copperfield, it doesn't, it, it's hard to feel really anything in that moment because these are kind of just people with funny names and not a whole <laughs> lot else. And it's, it's disappointing because the actors do do a lot to invest those characters with as much humanity as they can, given their limited screen time. They just have really limited screen time. Yeah, I, I think a, there are a couple of standouts. I think Hugh Laurie is funny, and there's that bit, uh, you know, where King Charles's head kind of ends up everywhere, <laughs> and 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 I think that's funny. And then there's a scene where David Copperfield meets a, a young woman. He's immediately struck by her. And they begin to talk, and she's holding a dog, and she talks for the dog, then he talks for an apple tree. And that's really funny. And I, I think it's in those moments whenever I, I think, oh, okay, this is this is Iannucci, right? This is this is Death of Stalin's. This very funny, uh, idiosyncratic dialogue. Uh, I, I, I think I think it worked at times, but there wasn't enough for me to really latch on uh, to. And I know some people had had a great time with this movie. They, they had a lot of fun. I just, uh, it just didn't happen with me. Yeah, I think it's 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 sad because there, there was a lot of potential here, but just doesn't, it didn't quite land for me either. Listeners, that is our review of The Personal History of David Copperfield. It is, you can buy it on Amazon Prime as well as stream it on Vudu, and it will presumably be more widely available on more streaming platforms as time goes on. Uh, let us know your thoughts if you've had a chance to see it either during its uh, original release or here now in its streaming release. But for now, Wade, let's uh, close things out with our recommendation segment where we both recommend something from the world of television or film that we've had the chance to experience. What do you got for us this week? Yeah, well, I was thinking about Dickens and I was thinking about A Christmas Carol. We kind of joked about that. There's this this great article, and this is not my recommendation, but something uh, that I think listeners might be interested in, uh, from a website called Den of Geek. And it's called A Christmas Carol, The Best and Worst Adaptations. And they just, the, the, the writer, Robert Keeling, goes through, I think, almost every single adaptation. And he does a great job of just kind of talking through the strengths of each one. So if you're really interested in that sort of thing, that might be something to, uh, to examine. I have not seen the BBC production. I think it, I think it was released, was it last year or the year before? Um, so there are a couple out there that I, I still need to check out. But my favorite uh, so far of the Christmas Carol adaptations is The Muppet Christmas Carol. I saw this for the first time last year and thought it was just so funny. I'm, I'm just wow. incredibly late to the party. I wasn't a Muppets guy growing up. Uh, but I saw it in uh, 1992, of course, and directed by Brian Henson. It's it's really funny. It stars Michael Caine as Scrooge. I'm sure most people are like, yeah, yeah, that movie's great. You're you know you're coming late to the party. But if anybody hasn't seen that movie or hasn't seen it in a while, you should check it out because it's uh, it's really great. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm surprised. First of all, that that was the first time you'd seen it last year. That's a <laughs> that's an impressive time to have gone without seeing a Muppet Christmas Carol, but. Uh-huh. Uh, better late than never, and I wholeheartedly second that recommendation. It's a really fun adaptation, and I don't know. I I think that 
uh, Michael Caine might be my favorite movie Scrooge. No, I yeah. think he's, he does a really good job with the role. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, he he does. It. He's uh, he's really great. He's really great in this. It's, it's a it's a good movie. It's a lot of fun for, especially you know, gather the family around. So I I need to watch it again this year because I just I loved it. Yeah, it's it's a good one for sure. Uh, my recommendation for this week is going to go to uh, the the other end of the spectrum, I guess, from a, from a light, fluffy holiday film to something a little bit, uh, I don't know, shall we say, crunchier. Um, so we've talked often on the podcast, Wade, about bad biopics and how we just the we, we don't like the the ones that just kind of rest on the cliches and there's you know this very samey feel to all of them um and i actually had the chance recently to catch up with a biopic that i've been wanting to see for a while because i really like steven soderbergh and i i'm doing my best to kind of catch up with with all of his work especially the lesser scene of his films and that meant revisiting his 2008 diptych on Che Guevara, titled simply Che. It came out, uh, like I said, in 2008. It stars Benicio Del Toro as the uh, famous... uh, as the famous revolutionary. And I think it's just a really interesting exercise in telling a story, uh, retelling the, the life story of a really controversial figure, but finding ways to to kind of do that in a, in a matter of fact way rather than trying to lean into the the legend that presumably everybody already knows. So um, it's a two-parter. I think the first part especially is, uh, is interesting compared with the second part. And the first part, Soderbergh kind of cuts between the, the famous revolution in Cuba that Che helped uh, Castro undertake. And he intercuts that with these... Uh, uh, scenes from the '60s where Guevara visits the UN and gives you know his famous speech uh, accusing the United States of perpetuating abuses that keep that make uh, Latin American countries ripe for the sort of revolution that Guevara himself led. Um, but Soderbergh kind of makes the the choice to film those kind of this gritty verite style, whereas the the scenes of the actual revolution are almost in like this classic, almost David Lean like uh, <laughs> quality. Like there's the 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 music and the performances and the cinematography all feel very very classical, and just the contrast between those two makes you. Uh, question yourself like uh, which one of those is more faithful to the reality and that kind of sends the viewer on this on this uh, mental tangent on well what does it mean to to really look back at the past what does it mean to tell the story of a real life person and how can cinema kind of affect your perspective on it and affects how much you're trusting its version of events. I think it's a really fascinating film. And uh, if you're like me, who didn't necessarily know a whole lot about Guevara, except the very barest outlines and that one t-shirt that everybody used to have, uh, <laughs> it's it's very educational as well. So I think that's just, it's really worth watching. It took, it took me a while to get around to it. I had the actual physical Netflix DVDs sitting in front of our TV for... An embarrassingly long time, but I'm glad that I finally made time for it. It's really good. Yeah, I I have not seen either of those films. I think because it's a two-parter, 
it's just like, okay, if I start one, I'm going to have to watch both of them. When am I going to have time to, to check those out? So I, I do need to watch those movies. And I love the way that you work through the, kind of the formal style. That just, that's very intriguing. And uh, it, it definitely uh, has my attention. Yeah, it's it's worth checking out. It's on the Criterion Collection, so if you need that kind of imprimatur okay. uh, to uh, further push you in that direction, there's that as well. No, that's that's great. That's great. Well, listeners, that is our show. Kevin, I am really excited for you, and uh, we're going to catch you a little bit later uh, on in the year or in 2021. Have a great break. Enjoy this time. Uh, this is a this is a great this is a great moment. So it's it's going to be wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I will uh, miss being on the show, but I probably won't miss it all that much because <laughs> I'm going to just be very much occupied with uh, uh, our new son. So yeah. it's something that I, I'm really looking forward to the next few weeks. Yeah, that's that's incredible, listeners. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden, my co-host is Kevin McLenathan, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz used under Creative Commons License 3.0.